you have loved us, that you have given us your Son, that you have seen fit in your grace and in your mercy to draw us to yourself. Thank you for the privilege of coming to this place to meet with your people and to worship you, and we pray that our worship would be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer, for we pray these things in Jesus' name, amen. If you have your Bibles, let me invite you to open them once again to the fifth chapter of Ephesians. And uh, it's such a privilege to be here again with you this morning. Um, I want to thank uh, our fellows for leading us well in worship before the throne of God. Um, really enjoyed Gene's message last week. I was, uh, I was, I listened to it on the podcast, and I was putting a beadboard on a porch ceiling, and so I fired it up on my phone and I set it on the on the ceiling and just kind of followed brought it along with me, although uh, it was a powerful message, and there was times I wanted to grab Gene and just throw him somewhere else, because he cut me pretty deep a few times, Uh, but I'm thankful for it. If you're in Ephesians chapter 5, we're just going to read one small verse here. We're going to cover 21 verses, which is a a monumental task, and, and really we shouldn't undertake it in any sort of sanity, but we're going to try to cover... 21 verses this morning, uh, because next week is my final week with you, so far as I know, and uh, I want to get to verse 27 in the worst way, and so uh, I don't want to skip my way there. We're just going to plow through, having started in chapter 4. So uh, verse 15 says this, Therefore, be careful how you walk, not as unwise men, but as wise, making the most of your time, because the days are evil. Um, there are we could talk about in this text walking in love in verse two. We could talk about walking as children of light in verse eight. But we're going to take and we're going to put everything that we say this morning under the umbrella of walking not as unwise men but as wise. We are called to walk in wisdom. And so in our little series that that we're doing, we've talked about being called to walk in unity from chapter 4, verse 1 to 6. We've talked about being called to walk in strength from chapter 4, verse 7 through 16, called to walk in newness, verse 17 to 32. This morning, called to walk in wisdom. And next week, Lord willing, we'll speak on being called to walk in hope. All right, so that's where we've been, where we are, where we're going. Now, This morning, I got four marks of the wise walk to try to divide this text up into something uh, digestible, and so uh, we'll we'll begin with those. The very first mark of the wise walk of the believer, do you want me to adjust this? Am I goofing this up? The first mark of the walk of a wise believer is in verse 1 and 2, and that is a walk that is a fragrant sacrifice. Listen to what Paul writes in verse 1. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love just as Christ also loved you and gave himself up for us in offering and a sacrifice to God as a fragrant aroma. There are sacrifices that God loves and there are sacrifices that God 
hates. I, I, I hope you have a category in your mind for things offered to God that God just doesn't want. In the book of Malachi, in chapter 2, it's one of the most graphic pictures of all the Bible. You kids will appreciate this. God is so displeased with the worship of His people in Malachi 2, I think it's in verse 3, that He tells them He's going to smear manure all over their faces. Can you imagine? God said that? Yeah, that's what He said. And I think what He's saying is, your sacrifices stink, so I'm going to put some stink on your face so you can get some sort of sense of what it's like for me to have to endure your sacrifices. In the end of Exodus chapter 30, there's a recipe. I don't know if you knew that the Bible had recipes in it, but there is one in the end of Exodus chapter 30, and it's a recipe for incense because God wanted to help His people appreciate the fact that True worship is a pleasing aroma to God. It gives Him pleasure and it causes Him to look favorably upon us. And of course, the sweetest smelling sacrifice in all the world was Christ's sacrifice for us. And so God the Father loved us, amazingly enough, and and Christ purchased us by dying for us. And that sacrifice of Christ on the cross is pictured as rising up into the nostrils of God and he is greatly pleased with the fragrance of the sacrifice of Christ. When we walk in love, we, as Paul says we should do in verse 2, we are to walk in sacrificial love because true love sacrifices. Love will always suffer loss for those whom it loves. And when we walk in this kind of sacrificial love that Jesus walked in, we smell like Jesus. And that's what Paul is saying here. Imitate God, walk in love, smell like Jesus. It's really a a beautiful picture. So if we are to walk wisely, we have to love as Jesus loved, and then we smell like Jesus smelled, metaphorically speaking. Of course, we'd all say that we want to do that. The question then becomes, are we actually willing to love as Jesus loved and to sacrifice like Jesus sacrificed? It's all well and good, right, to say that we want to love like Jesus loved, but for, for my part, I often forget how painful and how costly it was for him to love like he loved but we are called to walk in love and Jesus is our example so if we walk as he walked and if we love as he loves we will be a fragrant sacrifice reminiscent to God the father of Jesus Christ himself and that is of course very pleasing to God the second mark of the wise walk is that of fitting speech in verses three through five fitting speech And I'll divide this into two categories. The first is fitting speech, fitting to be said about the saints in verse 3 and 4. Paul writes this, Immorality or impurity or greed must not even be named among you as is proper among saints, and there must be no filthiness and silly talk or coarse jesting which are not fitting, but rather the giving of thanks. Now the way the word named there in verse 3 is used in the Bible, the phrase not even named among you doesn't mean so much that you don't say the words, but rather that those words must never describe the saints. It means that 
that the saints of God should never be branded as immoral, impure, or, or greedy, is the little list that Paul gives here. So the speech here is not so much what is coming out of our mouth, but what comes out of the mouths of other people when they are describing us. Here's the interesting tension we face. Let me just kind of try to engage your mind here. Other people's opinions can be really powerful and influential in our lives. But, but we understand as believers that it's God's opinion of us that really counts, right? So there's a sense in which we actually say, who cares what other people think and who cares what other people say about us? But here's the thing. God actually cares what unbelievers think of us because what they think of us, they will think of our God. Psalm 115.8 says that we become like the God we worship. And so if I want to know what kind of God you worship, I look at you and I see what you are like. And I say, your God must be like you because we become like what we worship. If it's the God of whatever, whoever it is, money, pleasure, the God of Islam, the God of secularism, doesn't matter. You become like your God and so do I. And so it's only fitting for Paul to say in verse 1, imitate God, and then say, don't ever let yourself be called covetous, filthy, or sexually immoral because those things reflect poorly on our God and it isn't fitting for his people to be called those things. Let me just give you a quick illustration of this sort of tension between actually caring about what people say about us and not caring. Jesus said in no uncertain terms in Luke 6, verse 22, blessed are you when men hate you and ostracize you and insult you and scorn your name as evil for the sake of the Son of Man. That's, that's life when, when people speak ill of you. And we should expect that just as Jesus was ill-spoken of and slandered and insulted and his name was scorned as evil, ours is going to be also. Peter says that we are going to be slandered as evildoers. In, in the world in which we live, there's always going to be some sort of ethical conflict between the people of God and the people of the world at some times and so that which that which we as christians call good at times the world is going to call evil and vice versa and we see it right now in 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 the arena especially of of uh homosexuality and and gender issues Uh, we happen to stand as believers diametrically opposed to the world in general we say that those things are evil and the world says that they are virtuous and so we're going to be called evildoers for how we understand the way that God has designed males and females to interact with each other and that's okay in that sense really who cares what they say because it's Jesus opinion that counts but here's the other side of this and let me just throw this at you cause you to think Paul says giving the qualifications of the elders in first Timothy 3 Paul writes this in verse 7 he the potential elder must have a good reputation with those outside the church so that he will not fall into reproach in the snare of the devil. And so what Paul says there is that if a man has a bad reputation among unbelievers, he's actually disqualified himself from being an elder in the church, which means in that sense, not only does it matter what people say about us, it's, it's critical. And so I think that's the sense in which Paul is speaking here in in chapter 5 and verse 3 and 4. Calvin said concerning this verse, quote, three things are here enumerated which the apostle desires Christians to hold in such abhorrence 
that they shall not even be named, or in other words, shall be entirely unknown among them. End quote. We are to never, never, never allow it ever be said that the church of Christ is a place where sexual immorality, moral bankruptcy, or greed dwells. It's not fitting that a believer should be called any of these things. And, And you understand, we don't have to expound greatly on the list of sins that's here in verse Three, um, uh, sexual immorality, pornea refers to any sort of sexual sin in whatever form it takes, and there are many. Um, and, and our definition of what sexual sin is is different at this juncture than the culture's definition. And culture understands some things are sexually uh, inappropriate, but their their understanding is not the same as ours. Um, impurity simply means unclean. Uh, don't be called a dirty church. It's kind of a large category uh, that catches all sorts of things. Uh, lying, theft, the way we conduct ourselves in business. Have you ever heard of people that have dirty business practices? Uh, things of that nature. Don't be shady characters. Don't be, don't be like those people who are afraid to step into the light of close scrutiny. Saints shouldn't be like that. It's not fitting for a saint to be dirty in that sense. Formerly dirty, yes, that's who we were. We're still imperfect by God's grace. We're becoming more perfect every day, yes, but the big obvious marks of impurity are gone. They have to be if we are to be a church that is walking wisely. Greed is the third word there in verse 3, which in verse 5 is called idolatry. Um, and, and so we are to not allow these things to characterize us. Uh, and so when we talk about fitting speech in verse 3 we're talking about uh, speech that is uh, fitting to be said about us in verse 4 it's speech that is fitted fitting to be said by the saints in verse 4 there must be no filthiness or silly talk or coarse jesting which are not fitting but rather the giving of thanks so paul is talking here about words that come out of our mouths the words that come out of our mouths have to be of a certain quality and Jesus said, out of the heart, the mouth speaks, right? But I, but I want to just cause, stop and think for a moment that Jesus is not giving us license to say whatever pops into our head. And, and what I want to kind of uh, handle here is the, the idea that, well, if you don't say exactly what you're thinking, you're probably a hypocrite, okay? Because if we think something and we don't say it, uh, people might say, well, you're just being a hypocrite. So let me just think through that with you for a moment because we live in a day when speaking our mind is a virtue or even a psychological treatment that we call venting, right? We're just going to say whatever we're thinking and feeling. And Psalm 141.3 says, Set a guard, O Lord, over my mouth. Keep watch over the door of my lips. James talks about bridling our tongues. Put a bridle on it like a horse so you can control it. I take that to mean that everything we want to say, we actually shouldn't say. And so God has actually put a, a step between thoughts that are generated in our hearts and you hearing what those thoughts are. And that is we have to take those thoughts and form them into words and actually say them. And you have just that much time to say, to think, is this something that I want to actually express in my words? In the time, that's, that's, that's how much time we have. What comes out of our mouth comes from our heart, but that doesn't mean that everything that comes 
that is in our heart ought to actually come out of our mouth. Because all sorts of bad stuff is generated in our sinful hearts constantly because we have wicked hearts. But our hearts also, by God's grace, as believers, are under the control of the Holy Spirit. And so Romans 8 indicates that there's a war going on within us, a war between flesh and spirit. Part of that war is being fought over what is going to come out of our mouth, flesh or spirit. And so they're both creating thoughts and words within us, but the Lord, by His grace, has only given us one tongue, so we can only speak one thing at a time. So we, we squash this one down and, and, and speak that one. Uh, that's how we choose our words without being hypocrites. We understand there's an old man and a new man fighting within us. The old man we put down, we kill, or in the language of chapter 4, we, we put off, we walk in newness. And so that's, that's the battle. It's not that we're never going to think the things that fit into this category of, of uh, verse 4 here. We're going to think these things, but Paul's saying it's not fitting for saints to lend their tongues to verbalizing those sort of Thoughts. Don't let filthiness come out of your mouth. Verse 4, there must be no filthiness. The root idea behind that word has to do with shame. Don't say things that would cause you to feel shame. Think Isaiah in the presence of the holiness of God in, in Isaiah 6. And he says, instinctively, woe is me. I am undone, for I am a man of unclean lips. Um, have you ever seen, <laughs> I used to, uh, my, my dad's a pastor and I used to go play basketball with him at the community center and some of those guys were just terribly filthy uh, and, and then they would find out that my dad was a pastor and suddenly all the, the cursing that they did in the presence of a man of God seemed so inappropriate and they would be ashamed. They would feel shame in the presence. My dad's not God, but he represents God. And so there's a, it's fitting for those fellas to feel a sense of shame in the presence of a representation of, of some measure of purity. And, and Paul is saying, don't let words come out of your mouth that would bring you shame. Don't let silly talk, uh, silly talk, or the ESV says foolish talk in verse 4, escape your lips. That's a, that's a fun word in the Greek. Every once in a while you're, you're reading, you're working through the Greek, and you're like, I wonder what this word is, and you get a fun one, and this is a fun one. The, the Greek word here is, is moralogia, which you can take straight into English as moronology, okay? Moronology. It's wonderful. Moronic talk is talk that is fitting for a moron, right? And so Proverbs 17, 17 says this, excellent speech is not fitting for a fool, and the reverse is opposite. Foolish speech is not fitting for an, a person of excellence. Fools talk like fools, but saints shouldn't talk like fools. Saints should talk like saints. Proverbs 17.28 says, Even a fool, when he keeps silent, is considered wise. It's better just to keep your mouth shut uh, than to speak like a fool. Or Proverbs 18.2 says, A fool does not delight in understanding, but only in revealing his own mind. Never be the person that always talks and never listens. You probably know someone like that. Sometimes I'm that person. It's a, it's a dreadful thing. It's a fool who speaks constantly. So be wise. Don't, don't try to earn your PhD in moronology studies. In verse 4, lastly then, Paul says saints shouldn't engage in coarse jesting or, or crude joking uh, because this is not 
fitting. The Greek word there is eutropelia, and it literally means a good turn. It has to do with a turn of phrase or, or double entendre. Uh, because of the nature of language, words can mean more than one thing, and, and we can exploit those things for humorous purposes. We do that all the time. Uh, and, and just so we don't get too legalistic about this, we understand that there are times when even the Bible itself uses one word to mean a couple of things. For instance, uh, John 1.1 1, 1 begins, in the beginning was the word, and, and John used that word logos. And almost certainly he's, he's referring to the fact that Jesus is the, the expression of the Father, what God wants to say to us. Jesus carries that, that expression. Jesus is the bearer of the Father's thoughts toward us. But he's also probably working off the Greek concept of logos as a, as a unifying principle, as a, as a technical term in Greek culture. And so we can actually uh, leverage language to do multiple things at once, but we can also turn a phrase that is on the one hand innocent and is on the other hand uh, evil. And, and then we throw up our hands and say, well, I didn't mean it that way. And of course you meant it that way. But you, we can sort of hide under the guise of, of innocence. I don't think we need to do any example of this. Uh, maybe we could just think back to the locker room in high school where the academic standards are extremely low, except there are those who have advanced degrees uh, in the clever use of turns of phrase to express at the, one, at the same time innocence and evil. And Paul says it's not fitting for saints to speak like that. It's also fitting speech is speech as fitting to be found in the kingdom. And this is in verse 5. Paul says this, you, This you know with certainty, that no immoral or impure person or covetous man who is an idolater has an inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. This is almost self-explanatory. We don't have to dwell on it long. Let me say this. The kingdom of God is going to be populated by citizens who are appropriate to live in it. I think, of, uh, I think of Nebuchadnezzar uh, back in the book of Daniel. You remember that, that God struck him with the mind of a, uh, of a dumb beast, turned him into an ox. And you know where Nebuchadnezzar actually wound up living? He wound up living in the backyard and sleeping out under the stars like an animal. And I th- I, I've thought about that and I've thought to myself, he's still the king and they understood that he was still the king. But it wasn't actually fitting for him to live in the king's chambers anymore. It wasn't appropriate for him to live in the palace. And so they, since he was acting like a, a cow, they just turned him out into the pasture like a cow. Because that was fitting, that's appropriate. So, God at this very moment is preparing his people to live in his kingdom and he's causing us to behave appropriately or to behave fittingly with our citizenship. He's not dressing down the kingdom. He's dressing up the citizens. Does that make sense? Paul says, and he says it with emphasis, this you know with certainty that no immoral or impure person or covetous person will have an inheritance in the kingdom. What does that mean? Well, it means... Drop the immorality, drop the impurity, drop the coveting because, because greed is idolatry. Idolatry is worshiping someone other than God and only God worshipers are going to be in God's kingdom. Okay? If you're going to go and worship something else, God doesn't want you in his 
kingdom is, is the sense, or not in that state. And you know this, so I'm not going to stay too long here either, but we gain the kingdom by grace through faith, that not of ourselves, it's the gift of God, chapter 2, verse 8. But by grace through faith, not only are we regenerated and we are justified, but we are continually sanctified. We are continually, by grace through faith, made into citizens who are fitting and appropriate for the kingdom of God. And so we set aside immorality, impurity, and coveting. Because if we don't, make no mistake, says Paul, There is no inheritance in God's kingdom for us. Let me give you a a fascinating example from this, uh, of this from Matthew chapter twenty-two. You can turn there if you like. I'll I'll read this to you. This story uh, from Jesus. The kingdom of heaven, Jesus said, may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son and sent his servants to call those who were invited to the wedding feast, but they wouldn't come. Again, he sent other servants saying, tell those who are invited, see, I have prepared my dinner. My oxen and my fat calves have been slaughtered and everything is ready. Come to the wedding feast. But they paid no attention and went off, one to his farm, another to his business, while the rest seized his servants, treated them shamefully and killed them. The king was angry and he sent his troops and destroyed those murderers and burned their city. Then he said to his servants, the wedding feast is ready, but those invited were not worthy. Go therefore to the main roads and invite to the wedding feast as many as you find. And and those servants went out into the roads and gathered all whom they found, both bad and good. So the wedding hall was filled with guests. But when the king came in to look at the guests, he saw there a man who had no wedding garment. And he said to him, friend, how did you get in here without a wedding garment? And, And he was speechless. Then the king said to the attendants, Bind him hand and foot and cast him into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Isn't that fascinating? Here's this free feast. People are invited. Come. Uh, the guests are invited by the goodwill of the king. They don't know him. He, just, he, just, he doesn't know them. He just invited them. But the man who showed up in the wrong clothes got pitched out. Enter the kingdom. God is calling us there by his grace, but we enter the kingdom as citizens who are appropriately prepared to live in it or we don't enter into it at all. Number three, the wise walk is marked by those who are faithfully separate. And this is in verse six through 14. Verse six begins with a word of caution. Let no one deceive you with empty words for because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. So here in Ephesus, there's someone who is using empty words in order to deceive. What's, so here's our question. What, what are the empty words and what is the deception? It seems like it's simply this. It seems like this is what's going on. Someone has come along and has begun teaching the Ephesians that God's really not that upset at sin anymore, that the immoral and the impure and the covetous actually will inherit the kingdom And that actually sounds like really good news to people who love their sin, doesn't it? Um, The problem is it's not true. And you might think that God is not going to pour out his judgment on sin-loving people, but the reality is that he he will. And, And it's... 
It's really quite disheartening for me to think that there's going to be people that are going to stand one day in the presence of God and, and think that they are, have an inheritance in the kingdom because somebody came and told them God doesn't really care if you continue to live in sin. You'll be fine and they're going to show up and they're going to realize that it really isn't fine. And that's going to be a, 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 a tragic day. They've been fed a big fat lie because... There is judgment. There are consequences for sin. And make no mistake, no immoral or impure or covetous people enter the kingdom. I think that's the reason Paul stressed back in verse 5 that the Ephesians knew with absolute certainty that no one characterized as immoral or impure or greedy has an inheritance in the kingdom. They knew it because he taught it to them. But then along comes someone else with a different message. And so Paul is going to address the issue by telling the Ephesians that walking wisely means we are to be faithfully separate. And, and rather than actually spending a great deal of time combating the error directly, instead Paul goes up against those who propagate the empty words and the great deception beginning in verse 7. And, and Paul just says this, Therefore, do not be partakers with them don't partner with them don't associate with them separate yourselves from them we have to be sure that as believers we are drinking from fountains of teaching that are not tainted with poison you probably never appreciate uh, like your pastor does how utterly agonizing it is for him to turn the pulpit over to someone else not because he feels like his ego demands all eyes be on him, but because he understands that he is responsible for your souls. And, and when a shepherd turns the care of his flock over to another shepherd, even if only for a short season, his, his chief concern is that the, the substitute shepherd only feed them wholesome food. And when error and deception creep into a church, or what's even more tragic, when error and deception pop up from within a church, and in Acts 20, verse 29 to 30, you can see Paul's warning to these exact people in Ephesus along these lines. When that happens, we can't just ignore it because the price is too high. It is really the epitome of foolishness to allow this sort of empty deception go on. So we separate ourselves from it. And so verse 8 continues this thought, and it's rather interesting, the implication here. For you were formerly darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. Now here's the implication as I see it. True believers, genuine believers, go from darkness to light. That's fairly simple, right? You used to be darkness, now you're light. We We can draw that implication out. Someone who says they're a believer without going from darkness to light is not formerly darkness. The point is they're still in the darkness. These teachers that showed up in verse 6 with this business about be, not, God's not angry anymore, don't sweat it, uh, he's not upset at your sin, don't worry about it. Paul's saying they're not believers And it's really quite foolish, isn't it, to take instruction about the nature of God from someone who doesn't know Him. If if your plumber is teaching a class in dentistry, maybe just skip that one. (laughs) Uh, Find someone who actually knows what they're talking about. Children of light walk like 
children of light. They do it because it's their nature. They do it because God commands it. And if a person is not walking as a child of light, and I think Paul intentionally uses the word walk here because he's speaking of a general pattern of life, not just the individual steps. We all stumble in many ways. But if a walk, a general pattern of life, a general trajectory of our of our Christian experience is not the walk of a child of light, we could presume a person to be a son of disobedience or a child of darkness. So, what do we do? We've got those who are in the dark thinking they're walking in the light. It's a little ticklish because we're to reach out to those in darkness, right? Those in darkness need the gospel. But those who claim to be in the light but walk in darkness are actually quite dangerous to the church. Those walking in darkness have no interest to the light, and so those who walk in darkness and know they walk in darkness or make no claim to walk in light, I think Paul is saying you're actually safer around them than you are around those who walk in darkness and pretend that they are walking in light or who think they're walking in light. And so Paul says, don't partake with them. Separate yourselves from them. In verse 11, he writes this, do not participate in the unfruitful deeds of darkness, but instead even expose them. The idea behind exposing them is to show them for what they truly are. Uh, The wolf is wearing sheep's clothes, to use Jesus' language. So take the costume off. Expose the ugly underbelly of this, this doctrine here because it's going to send people to an eternity in hell by making them think that God's okay with them when he's actually not. So consider two things here, one relating to the children of light and one relating to the children of darkness. And then we'll move on. The children of light... Bear the fruit of light. You see that in verse 9 and 10. Children, true children of light, bear fruit of goodness and righteousness and truth. They're, They're morally upright. They're pure in their doctrine. There is no such thing in the Bible as a true believer who does not, at least in some measure, bear fruit of goodness, turning away from sin and loving truth. Uh, those who love truth and sound doctrine sometimes get a bad rap in our day and age. But here's the thing. Those who love the truth really only have a desire to know what really is because truth is reality, right? And those who love truth have no interest in living in a dream world or living in a world of imagination. They just want to know what the truth is and work with that. So when you go to the doctor, you want him to tell you what reality is. You don't want him to make you feel feel better by giving you a a, a misdiagnosis. You just want to know what is and then deal with it from that point. Here's the thing. When it comes to doctrine, though, really the, the truth is really the best news we could ever know. The truth sets us free. We don't need to be afraid of the truth. We should never stop trying to learn it. Because the truth is, verse 10, the Knowing the truth helps us to know what is pleasing to the Lord. Look at the way Paul talks about the children of light. The children of light in verse 10 are deliberate, intentional learners. They are trying to learn what is pleasing to the Lord. Why? Because you don't get to make up what pleases God. You don't, you, you can't, 
you can't throw manure in a vase on your kitchen table and tell your wife she should be pleased with it because you put it there. She actually wants flowers in the vase. And you don't get to tell her what makes her happy. And the same is true with God. We don't get to tell God what makes him happy. He tells us and we have to learn what that is. Now let me give you a word about the sons of darkness in verse 12. The sons of darkness in verse 12 operate in secret, right? Because the things they do would bring shame on them if they were exposed. It's disgraceful, Paul says, even to speak of the things which are done by them in secret. Jesus said men love darkness rather than light because their deeds are evil. And when things have to be done in secret, there's a problem. And I'm not talking about uh, prudence or confidence in those situations that for one reason or another don't need to be made public. Paul's talking here about the secret lives of false Christians. They're disgusting. They make you feel dirty just naming the things that they're doing. And, and by the way, this is, this is part of what makes false Christians and false teachers hard to spot. They don't actually put on a name tag that says, Hi, my name is fake teacher. My name is false Christian teacher, fake Christian. Listen to what I say and you'll go to hell. They, they don't actually put that on a name tag or in their resume. They don't walk around with an evil look in their eye. They're, they are evil. They are wickedness and and their involvement in the church is only so that they can feed that wickedness somehow, but they don't actually let the evil out into the open. Their wickedness comes out in the shadows where nobody can actually see it. They're not open, they're not transparent, and there's gaping holes in their visibility. They just disappear from time to time. Where are they? Well, they're in the secret place that Paul is talking about here. Expose them, Paul says. Expose them, get rid of them. They're going to destroy the church. Now verse 13 is a little bit awkward, but it speaks of the exposing of secret things. If you shine a light into darkness, everyone can see what's happening in the darkness. All things, Paul says, become visible when they are exposed by the light. When you're dealing with secret sins, the way to deal with them is to drag them into the light and then separate yourselves from them. There's a process here. Drag, drag the sins into the light and then you can separate yourselves from it. I think, I think as a practical matter, just pastorally speaking here, um, if, if you find that you have a, a metaphorical wolf in sheep's clothing, uh, you're, you're far better off and it serves you and and it serves the church as a whole better to take the costume off and expose the wolfness and then pull the trigger before instead of just shooting the wolf in costume and burying him in costume, you actually want to prove what you're doing. Um, that's a, sort of a practical uh, application here. Drag the disgraceful, nasty stuff out of the darkness into the light and look on its ugliness just long enough to prove it's ugly and then separate yourselves from it. Cal- Calvin, again, um, Calvin is powerful in, in his thoughts in this text. He suggests to us that the Ephesians, quote, were unworthy of the name of children of light if they did not bring to light what was involved in darkness, unquote. If we are to walk in wisdom, we must, when necessary, faithfully separate. And then, of course, the question is, well, isn't that harsh? 
Isn't that mean? Isn't it painful to shine that kind of light? And so that's why we go on to verse 14. Paul says, everything that becomes visible is light. For this reason it says, awake sleeper, arise from the dead and Christ will shine on you. That's interesting. Why would we actually shine light on darkness? It's not just for our own protection. It's for this reason here. Light wakes up sleeping people. Light gives life to the dead. When Paul says, Christ will shine on you, he's talking about a man who has gone from darkness to light. We faithfully separate ourselves from and we diligently expose the secret deeds of darkness because light gives life. There's a wonderful evangelistic side to this faithful separation. I don't think we should ever forget that. These, these men in Ephesus who are teaching empty words of deception and they're engaging in disgusting acts of wickedness in secret places, they're dangerous. We need to separate ourselves from them, but we also need to know that we're not only protecting our own souls in that instance, we are shining upon these people the very light of Christ that will save them because everything that becomes visible is light. That's an amazing phrase. Now, you'll have a hard time finding this, this little three-line song in, in the Old Testament. It seems that Paul just sort of pieced it together from the book of Isaiah, but it's really a beautiful song. I think if Jesus were to be singing a song outside the tomb of Lazarus, it would sound something like this. Awake, sleeper, arise from the dead, and, and I will shine on you. You can hear that coming from the lips of Jesus, can't you? That's what's referred to in theology as the effectual call. And the wonder of it is there's, there's a sense, a real sense in which the church itself is issuing the effectual call by their exposure of secret sins. Calvin, again, I think it's the last time I'm going to quote him, but he's so good here. He says, quote, Let us therefore endeavor as far as lies in our power to rouse the sleeping and dead that we may bring them to the light of Christ, unquote. Really? Did, did Calvin just say endeavor to rouse the sleeping and the dead? He, he actually did. He actually did. He didn't just say, they're relaxed, so they'll get there. He said, wake them up! We need to remember this. Tolerating error and tolerating sin never saved anyone. The truth of the gospel shown clearly saves people every day. And so walk wisely. Walk in faithful separation from darkness and see if sleepers don't wake up and the dead aren't raised when the light of Christ is shining. Lastly, the wise walk in verse 15 to 21 is a walk that is filled with the Spirit. There's a lot of confusion today concerning the ministry of the Spirit. Let me just use this word to encapsulate it for you here in this text, and it's the word management. The word management. Uh, the, the idea behind the word spirit is that of wind or air in motion, and the picture is this. When, when wind blows, it moves things along with it. And, and here are a couple of simple ways in which the Spirit manages the wise believer. The first is, of course, time management in verse 16, when Paul says, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. 
Wisdom makes the best use of time, right? Fools are those who waste time, and so the Spirit helps us to be wise. I suppose at this point it could launch into a lecture about setting our priorities in order and trying to squeeze every last second out of the vapor that is our life, and that would be good, but it occurred to me that Paul here doesn't say make the most of your time because your life is short. He says make the most of your time because the days are evil. And so that means that the evilness of the days, whatever that phrase means, threatens to ruin our time. In other words, if the days weren't evil, our time wouldn't be so easily lost. I think that's what he's getting at here. So how do evil days threaten our time? The word translated make the best use of is the Greek word exagorazo, which means to buy back. And so agora is the marketplace, and ex means to get it out of there. It's something you've lost, and you're going to go, and you're going to buy it back. Somebody was telling me yesterday that they had sent the wrong bin to the thrift store. And so they went to the thrift store a week later and bought all their stuff back. Um, So that's one way... To, to picture this, perhaps. In Galatians 13, 3.13, Paul uses that the same word this way, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law. Our time, your time, my time, our time that we have is embedded in evil days. The days are evil in the sense that they've been tainted by the curse of sin. Our, you ever think about this? Just surviving takes up the majority of your time and mine. The operative word in a sin-cursed world is futility. We do things only to have to do them over and over again, and it costs us a lot of time. We build a house, and it starts to rot. We fix our cars, and another part breaks. We plow the ground, and the weeds grow up again, so we have to do it all over again. There's a sense in which so much of our time is just spent fighting the evil effects of sin in this world. But there's also a sense in which evil days consume our time because everything in the cultural air that we breathe demands that we chase after that which is temporal at the expense of the supernatural. Everything in our culture says that when uh, junior soccer happens on Sunday morning, you skip church and you play soccer. And most believers don't even think twice about it. If there's anything, any time left over and absolutely nothing else going on, we will go to worship God. But life is busy. How many times have we said that? And busyness encroaches on serving the people of God and serving God's people then is set aside. I think in heaven we're going to be incredibly busy. We're not just going to sit around. We're going to have a lot to do. But at the same time, we will have time for everything. Not just because time never ends, but because I think in heaven we'll actually use, perfectly use our time if we can even say that we use time in heaven. But Paul's point here is this. In these days in which we live... The only way we can walk wisely is if, by the filling of the Spirit, we manage our time by buying it back and investing it in other places. It means dropping this so I can do that. It means selling off that responsibility so I can buy up that chunk of time and put it to work over here. And so we, we learn to recognize the, the places in which our time has disappeared into the futility of the curse of sin and the air of a culture that really has no no time for God and doesn't make any allowance for God and doesn't expect us to make any sort of allowance for God and actually get kind of upset with us if if we set their stuff aside to 
handle our things. So verse 17 says, don't be foolish. Understand what the will of the Lord is. Set your time management according to the Lord's will, not the culture's will. We're not going to agree with our culture what the best use of our time actually is. So let's just get over that. They're going to think we're weird if we take time away from what they think is the most important and pour it into what they think is of little importance. So we have to diligently, wisely, by the power of the Holy Spirit, manage our time. Secondly, verse 18 and 19 we'll call mind management. And this is the last. We're almost done. And I've already been instructed to preach shorter next week, but this week doesn't count. So, verse 18. Do not get drunk with wine. I grew up very conservative, for which I'm very thankful. I grew up being taught very clearly. uh, We don't touch alcohol. But I'm not sure anyone ever really explained to me why drunkenness was so upsetting to God. And I'm not going to say anything at all about the use of alcohol. That's not my place in this church. I'm not your pastor. That's Ken's job to handle that as his conscience sees fit. I will tell you why God hates drunkenness so much because I finally figured it out. And it's actually not as, it's not like that random. It's not like the law about eating pork. Uh, There's actually a reason behind the Lord's uh, command here. The greatest gift that God gave to you and me, physically speaking, is an eight-pound organ that rests between your ears and right behind your eyeballs. It's your brain. It's an incredibly powerful thing, and it's through our minds, through our brains, that we are able to to think and to communicate and, and to know God, to know His will, to understand His word. It's from our mind, our very physical brain, that, that we get the control of the things that we do or the things that we don't do. We talked earlier about controlling our tongue. Our brain handles that. It handles everything that's coming at us and decides, it handles all the impulses and senses and decides how we're going to respond to those things. Um, some people who have brain damage lose that filter on their tongue. Okay? If, if something's not quite functioning right, they just blurt out anything. Um, and, and, and that happens. It's, it's somewhat unfortunate. Those people can be unintentionally offensive. Um, but, but when our minds are working correctly, God has created our brains uh, to control us. And when we take that gift that God has given to us, our our brain, our mind, and we subject it to the effects of drunkenness, and you could add drugs and such here too, we're effectively altering the one thing that God gave us to control our sinful urges and placing it under the control, not really of ourselves, and certainly not the control of the Spirit of God, but of that substance, whatever it is. Here it's alcohol. Drunk people commit terrible sins of every kind. They commit sins that they wouldn't if they were sober. And so it's a grievous thing in the eyes of God to take the gift of your brain, that that organ in particular that ought to be under the sole influence of the Word of God and put it under the influence of something else. That's why God hates drunkenness. He loves your brain. He created it and gave it to you as a gift. And drunkenness is essentially saying, God, no thanks. I'm just going to shut down your gift for a little while and I'm going to pass control of it over to something else. And God's desire is that we, verse 18, be controlled by or managed by the Holy Spirit. And that happens in our mind. Uh, But instead, drunk people are managed by 
alcohol. Okay, so in verse 19, the mind that is managed by the Holy Spirit produces worship. There's two directions of worship here which are fascinating to me, and I spent much time thinking about this in the last couple of weeks. Verse 19, speaking to one another, that's one direction, singing and making melody with your heart to the Lord, that's the second direction. When we come together to worship, we do two things. We speak to each other, and we speak to the Lord. That's why we sing together. We could all have our own little cubicle. We could have a soundproof box up here, and you could come and put the headphones on and do your singing to God, and, and, and it would be all just you and Jesus. But we don't do that, okay? We all sing together because when we worship God, we are speaking to each other and we are also speaking to God. And when the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, manages our minds, we not only worship God, we actually help other people worship God also. And so you know what this means? This means that I can't worship God like I should if you don't help me. And you can't worship God like you should if your neighbor doesn't help you. And so there's a a wonderful mutual interdependence here on each other in order to worship as we ought. We speak to each other and we at the same time make melody in our hearts to the Lord. Verse 21 says this, we'll be done. Be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. Part of the Spirit's work in managing our minds is instilling in us a mutual subjection to each other. We're not here to climb a corporate ladder and see who gets the top spots. Um, We are all wonderfully servants of everyone else. Why? Because in verse 21, Paul says we reverence Christ or we fear Christ. The day that the Lord Jesus put a towel around his waist and started washing the feet of his disciples is the day when we should realize, we should have realized that there's no task that's too menial for us and there's no person that is beneath us. And so when a church is walking in wisdom and filled by the Spirit, it's a church that is full of servants. The only master is Christ and he's a servant too. He's serving you this morning. He is in heaven praying for you. Jesus doesn't need us any more than Bill Gates needs to pick up a penny off the sidewalk. But he served us by dying for us. Who are we to ever say that we have served someone more than they deserve? So it's my prayer for you and for us all together that will continue to grow, that you'll continue to grow into a church that is walking worthy of your call to walk in wisdom, to be a fragrant sacrifice, to be marked by fitting speech, to be faithfully separate, and to be filled by the Holy Spirit. Thank you, Father, for this text, and thank you for these people's kind patience as we rammed through here as fast as I know how to do, and I pray that through the foolishness of preaching, you would honor your word by the power of your spirit for the good of these dear people and for the good of those who don't know you yet, and you are going to shine your light upon them through the ministry of this congregation. And the sleepers will awake, and the dead will rise, because Christ shines from this place, from these people, and you will work through them. Thank you, in Jesus' name, amen.